You are listening to Take Back the Fight, a podcast that explores modern feminism in Canada and the digital age. I'm your host, Nora Loretto, and this podcast is based on a book that I wrote with the same name. This podcast is brought to you by Fernwood Publishing, and we are a proud part of the Harbinger Media Network. Episode 12, Feminist Futures. More than a month has passed since I recorded the last episode. And whether you're binging this podcast because you love it or maybe because it was assigned for you in class and you have to get everything listened to before the end of the semester, maybe it's not clear that so much time has passed between the last episode and today. I find it really helpful whenever I'm listening to political analysis to hear what the context is in which something is being analyzed or at the time of something being recorded. And so between those two periods of time from the last episode till today, Canada has been plunged back into a new COVID wave. The Omicron wave has brought the pandemic back around to a level that had not been seen for months before. And in some ways, this lockdown has been more difficult for people. We've been living through the pandemic for two years. We were told to get vaccinated, and that's all it would take for this to go away. Many, many, many of us have done that, and yet we find ourselves isolated again for the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth time, depending on where you live in Canada. And I can see that it's weighing heavily on the consciousness, on the energy, on the outlook and opinions of the people around me. When we're talking about activism, meeting people where we're at is a fundamental principle. And meeting people where they're at in a pandemic means that we have to also appreciate all of the other pressures that they are facing at the same time and the desires and the hopes and lack of orientation that all comes with living through such a foggy period. The conclusion of this podcast and of the book feels really far away from where I was when I started writing it. Partly that's because I've covered a lot of ground. We've gone from the history to talking about white feminism and neoliberalism and all of the things that social movement organizing can give to activists and activist movements, whether that is helping them become skilled in the art of debate or building their knowledge and, and creating knowledge together, whether that's building solid leadership that can withstand the attacks that will come from outside of our movements, or whether that's being serious about feminism needing to be anti-capitalist, decolonial, and anti-racist. And so I'm not going to sum up everything that we've just gone through in this episode. A conclusion just doesn't feel right. Instead, I want to talk about how much has changed since I wrote Take Back the Fight and what those changes mean for broader feminist organizing in this country. When I say it feels like a really long time since the start of Take Back the Fight, what I really mean is that it feels like a really long time since I wrote the book. And really, it has been a long time. Uh, it was two years ago, almost. And 
so much has changed. When you write a book that encourages people to meet together and to gather and create community spaces and cook meals for each other and and create these spaces where they can actually physically be in the presence of one another, and then all of a sudden the world halts with this pandemic, it's a bit disorienting. And you find yourself looking around the pages of everything you just wrote and, and, and wondering, did I just write something that has been made obsolete by this virus? The first draft of this book was finished January 2020. In fact, I received the first set of edits on January 29th, 2020. I was able to work on it a little bit more uh, over the next six weeks and then sent it off again for a second set of edits. And then when it came back to me, we were fully in the midst of a pandemic. All of a sudden, the idea of gathering was impossible. People were oriented towards survival only. And very early on, it was clear that there would be a gendered impact to this pandemic that intersected with the impact it has on people with disabilities, on racialized communities, especially Black and Indigenous communities. And we were seeing hints of that in a couple of ways. The first way was through the alarm being rung by uh, mostly women's shelters and advocates against gender-based violence who are saying that if people are locked in with their abusers, we will see a spike in abuse. This was one of the earliest messages that was coming in March 2020. And certainly we've seen that. We've seen an increase in domestic violence or gender-based violence or intimate partner violence. We've seen femicide uh, consistently in the news. And it seems like it has grown across 2020 to 2021 Already in 2022, 20 women and girls have been killed, 16 men have been accused, and there's four unresolved cases. And that's information that comes from the Canadian Femicide Observatory for Justice and Accountability, which, by the way, is an organization, uh, if you're not following their work, you absolutely must follow their work. The front lines in fighting gender-based violence tends to be the, the shelter system. And the shelter system is also the front lines of the pandemic, of the, of the way that COVID-19 spreads. It spreads within residential facilities. And so places where people are sleeping in close proximity to one another became very, very, very dangerous for the spread of this virus. And so many Shelters across Canada were saying we need more money. We needed more money last year. We needed more money a month ago. But now to be able to socially distance and give people the space that they need to in a safe way to be able to purchase rooms and hotels to to relieve some of the, 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 the space problems that exist within these facilities because there's just not enough beds or there's just not enough space because of the need to socially distance. There was an instant need for federal money. There was also the economic part to all of this, that in a time of crisis, it would obviously be the case that women would be hurt the hardest. And that's what happened. There was higher job losses. There was uh, more low-income jobs that disappeared. And that when government introduced wage subsidy programs, the program the, the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy actually gave people more money who made more money, which meant that systemically speaking, racialized women, indigenous women, disabled women, uh, women in general would be receiving less aid than men on average, than white men on average. 
although that was not something that got talked about very often. It was very much focused on women, uh, the role in the family, taking care of children who were all of a sudden out of school, all of the economic losses that 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 parents had to face or to, to absorb to be able to continue to keep their families safe while also trying to survive and, you know, making a paycheck or receiving um, the CERB if that was eligible to them. And then we also had this ridiculous policy that didn't allow people who were the poorest to receive CERB. So anyone who didn't make uh, more than $5,000 in 2019 were not eligible. So any individual who is wholly dependent on an abusive partner for their finances could not have gotten money from the government that, that possibly could have allowed them to flee if they needed to. And the group of people most impacted were disabled people and especially disabled women. This was not something that got very much attention from mainstream journalists and almost got no attention from politicians uh, throughout the pandemic, but certainly in, in March 2020. And so poverty, discrimination, lack of access to resources, lack of access to justice, um, individuals who are incarcerated, individuals who live within long-term care, the pandemic shows up and it hits these groups the hardest. By the time I'm writing the afterword of Take Back the Fight, the first deaths have happened within the healthcare system among workers, and the workers are all racialized. At that time, they were all women, which would not be a trend that would continue. There'd be a slight majority of men who would die from, from COVID, but the overwhelming majority were racialized, and the majority of them were black. In Take Back the Fight, I write this. The coronavirus pandemic has revealed just how precarious women's lives are in Canada, especially as domestic violence plagues so many who are shut in with abusive partners. Aside from increasing money for shelters, there's been nothing done as part of the government's emergency benefits to help anyone who's living in a dangerous situation. Marion Monsef, Minister of Women and Gender Equality, told CBC News, quote, What the pandemic has done with the self-isolation measures, with the closures of some of the support systems, is create a powder keg, unquote. But it was her government who instituted the isolation measures. Her government closed services without creating a way to save people from this violence. They could have offered free hotel rooms for women fleeing violence. They could have extended the Canadian emergency response benefit to everyone, even if they only made $5,000 or less last year. But they didn't. And she speaks about a powder keg as if she had no role to play in creating it. A feminist politician in a feminist role as part of a feminist government has blamed a pandemic on making things worse, as if her government couldn't institute emergency measures to mitigate the powder keg's explosiveness. A nationally coordinated feminist structure should be challenging and criticizing Monsef's comments, amplifying the message coming from the Transition Housing Association of Nova Scotia and demanding action on domestic violence and for better policies to help women survive the coronavirus pandemic. This is what we need so desperately, and the need was laid bare in the multiple crises that 2020 delivered. And just so you know, I was writing in the backdrop of the of the mass shooting that happened in Portapique, Nova Scotia, and the Transition Housing Association of Nova Scotia made the connection between domestic violence and the actions of that shooter that night. You can hear how tentative I am in those words. I'm, I'm not even sure what to call COVID-19. I, I keep calling it the coronavirus. And 
it was anyone's guess in April 2020 what would happen. But everything that seemed was going to happen did did happen. Those those benefits didn't actually ever come. And Monsef did not ever deliver the feminist policy that was so desperately needed. The inequalities that have been built into the system in every aspect of the system became exploited by a virus that didn't care if the budget wasn't balanced, that didn't care about the debates that have been swirling for years and years. All this virus cared about was transmission. And the, the, the cracks, the holes, the gaps and the chasms within our social security net made it very easy for COVID to travel as fast as it did and hurt and injure and kill as many people as it did, while at the same time, governments did very, very little. Recall that we have a prime minister who tried to make his entire legacy about women and girls and about how he is a feminist. Not only did the poorest individuals who are most often disabled women and racialized women Not only did they not get anything in this pandemic, not only did disabled people barely get anything in this pandemic, and in a lot of cases actually had their provincial benefits clawed back if they had accessed federal aid programs, not only did shelter organizations only receive 50 million for the first six months of this pandemic and then 50 million after that for the second of six months of 2020 to be able to make the repairs necessary to help keep their their clients safe. There was nothing significant done to help women, certainly nothing significant done to help trans women and non-binary individuals. And instead, the entire narrative of the pandemic and women got wrapped up in this idea that women are mothers and that what we really need is childcare. So this is very, very fascinating because over the course then of 18 months and then 20 months and then, you know, two years to where we are, we actually have on the table the, the, the possible structure of a national child care funding program. So to make sure that people don't pay over a certain amount every day for child care. You know, and I'm in Quebec. So Quebec is a little bit separated from this because we do have a provincial system of child care. But this national system, which has been, you know, been fighting, people have been fighting for this for decades and decades. And it comes in this bizarre moment where people need immediate relief. And rather than getting immediate relief, they're given a promise for relief sometime in the future. Of course, the cruel irony is they're given no relief because the people that will benefit from it are not yet pregnant. <laughs> However, that has been the, the, the one thing that the federal government has oriented itself towards. And it has gotten away with making child care the quintessentially women's issue. It ignores the fact that the vast majority of women do not have children who are child care age. Uh, It ignores the fact that a majority of women don't have children. And it ignores the fact that child care is not a women's issue. It's a parent's issue. And it doesn't mean that it's not important. I'm a huge advocate for child care for sure. But as a parent's issue, it helps men Uh, We can argue probably more, (laughs) but let's just say just as much as it helps women to be able to, to carry the costs that come with having young children within society. And so how does that happen? How do we arrive at this point where the only major issue related to women 
becomes an issue that a majority of women actually are not impacted by directly. Well, it goes back to what this entire podcast is about. The the low level of struggle within the left in general and the low level of organized struggle among feminists in Canada. That there was no formal pressure, uh, direct action, uh, taking to the streets, uh, forcing politicians, scaring politicians into doing things that would directly impact and help women now. And instead, it allowed the liberals to look back and make a political calculation and say, what would be the highest reward with the, the, you know, the, the least amount of pain necessary and childcare is the obvious one because it's a highly popular program. It's an economic, it makes economic returns, right? It's an economic benefit because it allows for more people to work within the economy. The Quebec model demonstrates that there are just so many reasons for why you would want a childcare system, even if you're totally on the right wing of the spectrum. In fact, the only people that can disagree with a childcare system are the ones who truly believe that women's role is at home and that they shouldn't be working. But on all of the other issues, on the questions of violence, on the, on the questions of economics, even on questions of, of keeping children safe, we're, we're not really in a good location. And, and actually, we, could, we can really look critically at it and say things are, are, are probably very bad <laughs> for, for women in 2020 in Canada. Maybe this is where I have to step back and say, again, the context of the moment is impacting the way that I'm thinking through this. We've just seen the far right successfully organize several border shutdowns, several convoys in cities all across Canada, and this multi-week occupation of downtown Ottawa. Actions that had any left-wing person tried to stage, uh, they would have met the, the end of a police baton instantly. They would have been jailed. They would have been fined. Just how complicit police and other law enforcement agents are in white supremacy and in allowing these kinds of protests to happen basically unabated. And I think about how in Take Back the Fight, I make the argument that the women's movement, if, if there was a fighting and activist women's movement right now, we would see women organizing against the far right in significant ways. And there, there isn't. There isn't. I, I want to shout out, of course, the, there's a couple of older women in Ottawa who blocked their street and, and didn't allow a big rig to, to pass down it. And, and that's the kind of direct action that um, I, I think is, is so necessary in this moment. And so we have a very weak federal government in terms of its majority. You know, it doesn't have a majority, so it's, it's not able to do whatever it wants. We have even more weak conservative and NDP opposition parties in Ottawa. And I think that there's this widespread feeling on the left that we just can't get it together. So maybe it's the time to start being optimistic. If there's one thing that's very obvious about the pandemic, it's that there has been an incredibly large and mass political awakening. People are realizing for the first time in their lives that politicians are not there to help them. The police are not there to help them. And in fact, politicians would much rather work someone to death than to intervene to shut down a facility and keep workers safe. 
every single thing about the pandemic has been oriented towards saving the status quo. And the status quo is everything that left-wing people oppose. The status quo is what entrenches white supremacy and what creates the 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 racially segmented labor market that we have. The status quo means temporary foreign workers not being able to get citizenship status in Canada, and it means that disabled people are left with very, very few resources to be able to live full and fulfilling lives. And so when politicians choose to save the status quo rather than choosing to save us, choosing to save people, we see very clearly in whose interests they operate. And you can see that, of course, in the balance sheets of the biggest companies in Canada, including companies where hundreds of people died within facilities that they own or operate, like Chartwell or Extendicare. You can see that in rates rising nonstop through telecommunications companies or the way in which the Cargills or JBS Meats of the world treat their employees and, you know, just ignore the fact that Hundreds and hundreds of employees might get COVID um, and, and maybe even five will die. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter because there's not going to be a government that's going to care if your actions directly contributed to these conditions. And so, sure, I'm being very depressing still, even though I just started this this part by talking about how I'm being optimistic. But the reality of the situation is so obvious it's so obvious and it's so hard to deny and it's being made obvious every single day as more and more people come into contact with this injustice if they haven't already. And certainly I've heard from people who for the first time are ready to pass to action. Now there's a lot of barriers in our way to that action. The first barrier being very obvious, the pandemic itself. And passing into action during a pandemic is very risky. When individuals are given two risks that they can take per day and those two risks are used up by going to work and sending your kids to school, you have no risks left over to be able to go to an organizing meeting or um, talk with individuals, let's say, not mitigated by some sort of private for-profit platform. And so we have to find ways to organize through those risks and do it in a way that still brings people together and allows people to feel the communion of being amongst others. This right-wing truck convoy that has wonderfully been called the Flu Trucks Clan does remind us that after two years of this pandemic, we do need to find ways to channel mass catharsis and if left-wing people are not doing that, well, I mean, we can see how well the right is using it. Now, the way the left might do that should look different. It would have to look different. It would have to look careful. It would have to look like it cared about individuals. But there is a spirit to this right-wing trucking convoy that I think we need to learn from and understand that, yes, after two years of a pandemic, things are desperate. And so the combination between people feeling desperate, people having these political awakenings, realizing actually that the NDP is a lie, that the liberals actually don't care if you live or die, the conservatives are cannibalizing themselves over whether or not they want to also be the far right or if they want to actually get people to vote for them. That when you cannot put your faith in the politicians of the day, to keep you safe and to give you fulfilling 
experiences or a fulfilling life or whatever, keep you safe on the job, keep your kids safe at school, we have to start taking measures in our own hands. And the only way that we can even begin to discuss what that looks like is by getting together and, and debating what we think that might look like. What resources do we have available to us? Who is willing to do what? Who is willing to take what risks and who is not willing to take any risks? And how do we find ways that people, regardless of where they're coming from, regardless of their abilities and regardless of the risks that they are or they're not willing to take, are able to meaningfully participate in building something? As I've said on this podcast, and as is very, very obvious, awareness in and of itself is not enough. Anytime someone is selling you awareness, you can pretty much guess that it's not going to go any further than just a flyer or a little bit of education. We are way past the moment of awareness because if anything, this pandemic has given us so much to be aware of. And that is good news for organizers because sometimes we get caught up in trying to build awareness as if people aren't aware of certain issues. And oftentimes people might not understand how certain issues uh, function or where they come from or who the major players behind creating a social condition that is unacceptable or whatever. But we're past the awareness moment. We're past the moment where we need to do basic awareness building. Now we're in the moment where we need to do deep study right? Studying uh, texts and ideas and, and polemics that will allow us to situate ourselves within certain movements or certain moments in time or understand debates that have been held for, for centuries that we might find ourselves engaged in again. And then we also have to figure out how to navigate social media, we have to remove ourselves from the part of social media that drags us into its, its, its ecosystem and says, here is where you do activism. Social media is not where you do activism. Social media is a, a, a moment that we will find ourselves, you know, some of us more often than others, uh, online, communicating with other individuals, expressing ourselves. And that's fine. That's all very much part of, of life and existence today. But we have to resist the pull that, that social media has on so much progressive organizing because we know that when we put all our stock into organizing online, it's very, very difficult to sustain it beyond certain rapid moments or flashpoint moments or whatever. In Take Back the Fight, I make it very clear that I'm not prescribing what I think needs to happen because I don't think I have all the answers. I think I might have maybe four or five answers, but we need probably hundreds more. <laughs> but I do write this. We must rebuild a structured feminist movement that is organized in a way that can navigate the digital era. We need to develop and or implement strategies to buck the normativity of whiteness in the feminist movement and give activists a broad framework for regrouping. In Quebec, where social movement organizations rise and fall and are created and replaced regularly, activists talk a lot about regroupment. How do we bring people together who've never worked together? Is there an emerging issue we need to fight through a new body? Is there a current group that can be expanded to bring other organizations and activists along? The process of regrouping reminds social activists that while nothing should be permanent, something must always be present and active. As Judy Rebick said, saving NAC for the sake of saving NAC would have been a mistake. So what should feminist regrouping look like?
I go on in the book, but I'm going to leave that there in this episode. What should regroupment look like? I mean, that's the word in, in, in the book. I use regrouping because regroupment's not a word in English. But now that I'm saying it, I'm going to say regroupment because that's the word in French, regroupement. There's this fidelity in English Canada to old structures that do exist. And oftentimes, left-wing organizations have a really hard time saying, well, we've done everything we can here. It's time to pack it in. And when you don't have groups that are willing to pack it in or to create new spaces, things can get very stagnant. And so we have this moment where, you know, there's, I would say, almost a whole generation of, of, of activists who've never experienced the end and then the beginning of something new. And so that, I think, is one of our biggest barriers and one of our biggest challenges is how do we go from nothing to actually creating something when so many activists uh, have never witnessed that? And so for more seasoned activists, the ones who have seen things rise and fall over the decades, we have a responsibility to talk about what that looks like or to call the meeting to say, look, we have a huge problem locally. We need to start feminist, explicit feminist organizing on this issue or for these purposes. And, and without people stepping up to do that, like who, who's going to do it? it, it it's going to be. What Miriam Monsef, who, you know, of course, she didn't win her election um, since the book was was written, but like the minister of, of women's issues in whatever province or, or in the federal government, it's, are we going to leave it to them? Are we going to leave it to not-for-profit organizations? Are we going to leave it to companies that talk a lot about feminism, but that don't really do feminism very, very well? No, it, it has to be us. And... In the last episode, I asked people to be in touch with me uh, with ideas and suggestions of things that they're really, really excited by. No one, no one responded. <laughs> but there is one group that I want to I shout out that someone did raise to me, and I have been uh, watching a little bit about what they're up to. And, you know, not knowing too, too much about them, uh, they certainly seem like they're organizing in a way that has an incredible potential. They're based in British Columbia, and they're called Feminists Deliver. They were founded in 2018, and according to their website, they now have 25 organizations that are under their umbrella. Their founding values include fighting to decolonize societies, including laws, structures of governance, organizations, and ways of thinking. They say they're intersectional, quote, we believe that structures of power, including colonialism, patriarchy, racism, and capitalism intersect to create diverse and compounding experiences of oppression and marginalization. They are inclusive of all people that experience marginalization on the base of gender, says their website. That's how they've, that, that's, that's a beautiful way to say it. And so including trans, two-spirit, and non-binary people. And we believe they say that charge comes from the grassroots and that the people most impacted by intersecting forms of oppression must be key actors in all conversations that engage their interests. They're internationalists as well. And so from that grassroots to the global movements uh, is, their, is their fifth core principle. As I say, I, I don't know anyone involved with Feminist Deliver. So if that's you, feel free to get in touch with me and tell me what's going on. But I do know that there's, uh, there's uh, abortion activists and there's advocates against gender-based violence. And I've already mentioned, of course, the Canadian Femicide Observatory. There are things happening. And so I really, really encourage you if you're interested in anything that you've heard in this podcast, if you're looking around in society and you're saying things are getting worse and I need to do something, 
you have to start by seeing what's going on locally. Look up your local library to see if there's any feminist reading circles. Look at local message boards and look at Facebook. Ask around. Write a letter to your local newspaper saying, hey, I'm looking for other feminists in town. Who cares? Do whatever it takes to find people. Use those neighborhood groups that are so annoying to see if you can have a feminist meetup in a park right now. And believe me, I'm in a place where it's very, very cold. I know that these things are not exactly easy. But until we make that step to bring people together and actually say, okay, how are we going to stop this trucking convoy? How are we going to put uh, gender-based violence on the agenda of municipal council? How are we going to support uh, feminists, explicit feminists who are involved in certain levels of whatever it is to make sure that they're able to push their vision forward in their union or in their not-for-profit organization or in their workplace or in city hall or whatever. There are so many ways that people can get involved. And I often hear from individuals saying, how can I get involved? What, what can I do? You don't have to look for the most radical thing. You don't have to look for uh, movements that look like they're about to just take down capitalism tomorrow. Although if you have that as an option, I mean, take take that option. Those are good options. But it also can look like getting people together in a community to talk about issues. And every single one of our communities is impacted by patriarchy and sexism and gender-based violence. Every single thing that we're doing is a location for organizing. And so whether that is a co-ed sports league where you're feeling like the uh, not non-male players are being uh, discriminated against or treated inc- unfairly by refs, call a meeting, do something about it. Maybe it's in your religious organizations where the men are just taking up too much uh, space and they're making decisions and they're, you know, they're making the women's lives total hell. Like organize committees, organize a confrontation, uh, get people together to figure out how to fix these structures. The workplace is an obvious location. Your neighborhood is an obvious location. There are so many ways for us to get involved. But I guess the underlying question that I pose in the book, and you know, two years on, I, I remain committed, I think, to the suggestion that I made. I've certainly not seen any solid arguments against this, is that we need something that's national. We need something that spans the country, that can bring people together from a lot of different regions with totally different perspectives and ways of thinking through different issues and experiences and chart the course of a new feminist movement, of a new movement that will be able to tackle patriarchy and that will be able to tackle patriarchy through the lens of colonization and through the lens of racism and through the lens of anti-capitalism. I think that there's a lot of hoping that someone else will do something. And I obviously also hope someone else will do something. I don't think that I'm the person who should be doing it, but maybe I am, or maybe you are, or maybe you know someone who is. And if that's the case, there's no better time than now. Take Back the Fight, the podcast is written, edited, hosted, and produced by me, Nora Loretto. The music is by me as well, with the exception of this, which is Garam Chai by General Khan. If you liked what you heard in this episode, too bad, that's it. There's no more. This is the last one. So make sure you've listened to all previous episodes. Share it with everybody you know. Let me know what you think. 
Certainly, if you've got criticisms, I would love to hear those. This podcast was made possible with the tremendous support, feedback, and camaraderie of Fazila Jiwa. I couldn't have done it without her. Take Back the Fight, the podcast, is funded by Fernwood Publishing, and we are a proud part of the Harbinger Media Network. You can check out all of Harbinger's progressive podcasts at www.harbingermedianetwork.com. Thanks so much for listening. Goodbye. Brain, the kind of trauma drama mix life makes you retain whole pain so deep i can no longer contain the betrayal at every level tired of the two-faced devils said i need to be more careful with my words i need to be more civil from what they observed oh word that's absurd i do not concur so they must confer and confirm i'm the concern but there's a greater purpose that i serve every track is an act of attack on the subjects in your knapsack you neglect to unpack whoa awaken your soul from oppressors comatose wonder why i do the most for those i hold close see the hues of oppression deep deep peak this trauma at the surface in my epidermis my body rests on rugs that are persian no need to heat this garm chai in my thermos hey Thank you.